Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sarah Bell, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. And welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English champion Sarah Bell about not making mistakes, the psychological aspects of managing herself, and trusting her gut. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you, Catherine? Jocelyn, I am very well. How are you? Fine. What's been happening with you? Well, I have been playing a little bit of bridge online and I have an auction that I would like to discuss with you. Oh, fire away. Okay. Let me start by saying I'm playing with robots on BBO. So I know them well. Yes, yes. Very well acquainted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been playing online a lot, I will admit. And um, so this was an online robot tournament. I opened a heart. My robot partner said two diamonds, two over one game force. Fine. I said three diamonds. My robot friend bids four clubs. What do you think four clubs mean? I would think it was a, a control qubit. I think you'd be right. And indeed, when I clicked on it, because when you click on it, it will tell you the meaning of the bid. That's what it said. Okay, so a four club qubit after three diamonds precludes a couple of aces, would you think? In the hearts and the spades, yeah, I would think. Yes, I would think too. And as I have two crappy little spades, I think I'm not going any further with this. And so I bid five diamonds. Signing off. Yes. 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 And then my partner's hand comes down and they've got the ace, jack, ten, three of spades. And if it was a real life partner, I would call them up and very nicely say, you're you're a wonderful person, but we can't play together anymore because you're lying to me. (laughs) Lying to me. Oh, my God. It's It's a computer program. I I don't understand. (laughs) There's probably an explanation that we don't know about. And um, maybe a three-level bid is something other than a control cue bid on BBO. I don't know. No, it's not because that's what they said the four-club bid was. So I ended up with a 12% game, which, Mm. not fair, been doing pretty well. And I think that sucks. 
You mean that hand, not the whole game. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, that is <laughs> that hand. But, you know, I'm watching and I'm doing nicely on each hand. I'm thinking, okay, it's one thing if I stuff up, but the robots aren't allowed to stuff up. I mean, they they throw in these weird bids every now and then, and I've learned to live with that. But you ask them a specific question, they seem to understand what you're talking about, and then throw in that zinger. I just wonder if a three-level bid of a major there somehow would have a different meaning. I mean, how can you go back and check what would three spades have meant? Oh, yeah. Maybe it's something else on on BBO. I don't know. I don't know how you'd even find that out. Oh, I know how we can find out. Listeners, if you know what three spades by the robot means after one heart, two diamonds, three diamonds, does three spades mean something else other than a control qubit, please let us know. Mm. Because otherwise, we are stuck with the conclusion that the robots lie. And I don't want to believe that. But I do know that their bidding can be a little sus. Yeah, sus is one thing. Lying is another category (laughs) altogether. Hi, this is Jim O'Donnell from the Chicago area. And I am seriously considering becoming a bridge teacher. I'm starting small. We have a foursome that practices on Wednesday nights. And each week before we start to play, I am giving them a lesson on how to play two over one. In addition, my partner in these sessions is new to competitive duplicate. And I have started to play with her as time allows. And she actually won her first fraction of a master point last week. Woohoo! We have a non-sanctioned duplicate game that plays weekly at the local senior center. I am going to promote with this group to attend the NABC this summer here in Chicago. This would be a wonderful opportunity to build more interest for the game here in the local community. We'll see how it all goes. For now, it's still in the dream stage, but I suspect I'll give it a shot because the more the merrier. Have you taught someone to play bridge? Or have you encouraged someone to come back to the game after a hiatus? If you have, we'd love to hear about it. Write to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com. And you never know, we might put your story on the show. And now back to the show. We arrive now, Jocelyn, at our favorite segment of the episode, The Letters. Could it be? (laughs) Yeah, we have letters. I love the letters. So do I. It's great fun. Our first letter is from Paul, who has asked, no surname or country, please. Oh, okie dokie. <laughs> what do we have? <laughs> Something embarrassing, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think for him, but maybe for the subject of his letter. Ah. A 17-year-old teenager was partnering with his mother in my local club, and he opened two clubs. I inquired and his mother said, it's either 23 plus or he has fallen in love with his hand. (laughs) Obviously, I couldn't let that one go and much mirth and mortification followed. (laughs) I bet. But nice that a mum is there with a 17-year-old. It's always nice to see. That is very nice. Yes, wonderful. (laughs) Thanks for writing, Paul. (laughs) Our next letter is from Lee, and Lee writes to share an amusing team result. We were playing in a team event matched against a many-time world and national champion and their sponsor at our table and their teammates, two other multiple national champions, at the other table. On board four, both vulnerable, partner opened one spade. I responded a preemptive three spades. My left-hand opponent bid four clubs, Partner with a 5521 bid four spades and was promptly doubled. Partner took only four tricks for minus 1700. Yikes. Oh, yeah, yikes. It was little consolation that the opponents could make six clubs for 1390. Oh, double yikes. Nor did we feel good about our set when on the last board, the opponents bid one spade, two no trump, Jacoby, four spades, minimum. Six spades. The pro who bid it said that, I bid what I thought I could make. 
which was a daring bid since Dummy came down with the Jack 10 Little Little of Clubs. Of course, the slam rolled home. Downhearted, we trudged back to our teammates to compare scores. They said, let's discuss board four first. Uh Uh-oh, minus 1,700. It was the same result. Push. Plus, they also bid the slam, and we actually won the match by one imp. Fabulous. They're (laughs) just as good as those world champions. Yes. Yes. If not smidgen better, one point better. Definitely. (laughs) That is so cool. It's such a a dramatic turnaround. You think you've just been destroyed. Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. They had the same card. They did the same thing. Yeah. And you doubled. Very cool. Do you do you remember, Catherine, when we like there was a period, I mean, I'm sure you remember, it's like <laughs> seared into your memory as it is mine, that we could not get our doubles together. It's like every time we were wrong, but we finally, I think, have figured it out. But it was painful. <laughs> it was yeah. double trouble every single game. But you know now that you've said that, it's just going to be a, a new stretch of du- of double trouble. Oh, no. No, 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 no. We have it straight. We've got it straight. Low-level yeah. doubles versus higher-level doubles. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel more comfortable about our doubles. Yes. That's true. Well, Mark has written to us from Birmingham, Alabama, with a story from several years ago about playing against the champions Andrew and Rita Stugart in a national tournament in the States. He says, I didn't recognize them at the table, but I certainly knew them by reputation. I doubled Andrew in a contract. When Dummy hit, I was mentally counting down three, but he proceeded to play the cards as if he was looking at my hand and made. When the smoke cleared, he scored it up. After the session, I made a point of looking up who the declarer was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh Aha. If only he had known. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, though, would you have changed your bid if you'd known who an opponent was? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I think I do. I mean, I don't know about that particular hand, but I think I do take into account their declarer play and their crazy bidding. Yeah. I think I'd be more inclined to change my bid if I felt that the opponents weren't as experienced. Well, yeah. I actually had a situation happen at the table recently where the auction went something like one no Trump, three no Trump. Oh, they ended up in three no Trump. And when the dummy came down, it was like, you raised a three no Trump on that? Should I be offended? (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, and he was taking it back. He's like, no, 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 I thought it was a good enough hand. And it's like, you have five points, you know, like, (laughs) and he's a good player. <laughs> but, yeah. But it had no reflection on on the opponents whatsoever. Well, he said he said he said no no no, I thought it was, you know. Yeah, they were like down a bunch. <laughs> oh, okay. So there was some justice. Mm, a little bit. Our final letter this week is from our good friend Peter in Townsend, Massachusetts. Oh, Peter. <laughs> yes. Hi Peter. I have a couple of observations regarding slow play, one of my major bugaboos. I know we were talking about this fairly recently when you had been accused of slow play, Jocelyn. Oh. Though I insisted that you, you, your your version of slow play doesn't even (laughs) great. So anyway, but it is one of Peter's bugaboos. You know how there are many declarer plays and bidding treatments that have names? Well, we used to call a protracted huddle the Somonex coup, named for the sleep aid. <laughs> Which induces slumber in your opponents such that you're able to, to make the hand that's unmakeable. Oh, that's the... <laughs> exactly. So it's very easy to lose concentration if one falls victim to it. <laughs> Another of my peers had a nickname for one particular pair of consummate time wasters. They were called... <laughs> Hesitato and Tenko. (laughs) Not to their faces, of course. Oh, no, of course not. Oh, those are good. (laughs) Keep them coming. We love this. This is great. The Salmonex coup. Yeah, I mean, that's 
possibly one I could learn since these other ones seem to go straight over my head. <laughs> <laughs> the bath coup and the scissors coup and the cuckoo. <laughs> the cuckoo. <laughs> Sominex coup. I might have some might have some chance that one. <laughs> yeah. So if you have any fun stories about maybe slips of the tongue at the table with the unintended innuendo or perhaps some fun victories against very renowned players or if you have some fun nicknames for certain declarer stratagems please do send them our way you can write to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on instagram or tweet us at sorry underline partner or you can send us a voice message these links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Sarah Bell. English champion Sarah Bell learned to play bridge in high school. She pursued her interest at university, where she studied natural sciences. She then went on to qualify as a chemistry teacher. When she's not in the classroom, she's playing bridge and writing about bridge. In 2017, she won the NABC Freeman Mixed Border Match. In 2022, she represented England in the European Championships. And later that year, she took home the silver medal in the World Women's Pairs, partnering with Marie Egeling. We began by asking if she'd had any interesting hands lately. I actually found that the hardest question. Because I don't think of myself as a player who generates interesting hands. <laughs> I'm very much um, a player who tries to not mess up and kind of lets the hand do the thing. Whereas I know a lot of other players tend to be people who generate kind of more action at the table. Have you ever pushed yourself in a different direction and tried to be another kind of player? I think for me... I've spent a lot of the last few years kind of trying to find what kind of player I want to be. And I haven't had regular partnerships for a lot of that time. And I've played on and off with my husband for many years, and he's now my main partner. But he was playing with Ben Norton for the last, I'm not quite sure how long, but two or three years or something. And um, I didn't really have a regular partner. And I was finding a lot that when I play with him, I tend to be quite a steady player. And he sometimes generates, but mostly I try to kind of keep the ball on the fairway, so to speak. And I often found then when I was playing with other people that I was more naturally falling into the role where I was trying to generate a bit more. And I'd kind of reached a position where neither of those felt super comfortable to me. I hadn't quite found sort of my voice at the table. But I think I'm becoming a little bit more confident that... I want to be more of the kind of steady player. Something that someone said to me, um, Tom Pask said to me, we were both juniors. We were playing in the mixed pairs in Germany. He said um, that bridge is a game where you strive for perfection. At the time, I kind of poo-pooed this. It sounded a little bit sort of over the top to me. But I think as I've become more experienced, that's really been something that I've experienced more and more, that... On every hand, I try to essentially not make a mistake. And obviously, we all fall quite far short of that. But I think at every point in a hand, I try to think, don't make a mistake yet. Keep it in play. Put off the moment where that's going to happen and sort of see what develops. And I think that's becoming something I'm more and more confident in, though, that it's really frustrating when you're less experienced than you play and kind of all you can see are mistakes that you're making and you want to kind of do something good as well. Whereas I think over the last few years, my mindset shifted a little bit and now I don't try to do good things. I try not to do bad things and just trust that good things will happen in time. Interesting. I'm curious to know when you think about the mistakes that you're avoiding is this largely in the play of the hand or does it even kick in in the bidding? Oh, definitely both. Both. I'd say that card play probably comes more naturally to me than bidding, which I think is probably true for quite a lot of players, but not for Mike, who loves a bit of system. I mean, 
mistakes in the bidding can be harder to spot the mistakes in the play because they're often much more subjective. It's easy to say, well, you took line A, but actually line B is a better line for this reason. Or, yeah, Trump's a 4-1, but actually there were these clues. And in the auction, it's often not obvious what would have happened if you did something different. Something that some players are really good at is finding the moment to take a bid where suddenly something good will happen to them and Oppo sort of misjudge the situation. But it can be very hard. Like I wouldn't normally describe it as a mistake to not make such a bid because you can never know how that's going to develop, if that makes sense. But just last night, I had a hand where I definitely made a mistake that I needed to, well, I didn't on the cards, but I definitely should have um, bid four hearts over three spades, kind of just fairly speculatively, and I didn't for no good reason. I sort of knew I was supposed to bid and talk myself out of it. It didn't really make a difference to anything, to be honest. Oppo were bidding four spades either way, and it wasn't making either way. But definitely that was a mistake. Or I guess it's often more easy to notice mistakes if you look at two hands and you think, well, we got to the wrong game. Looking at our two hands, we really should have been in three no trumps. Was this just one of these things that happens because you don't manage to bid every hand perfectly to where you want to be? Or actually, could we have done something differently here? So Sarah, what's the voice in your head that starts speaking to you saying you've made a mistake? Um, I mean, it's not a voice that troubles me, if that makes sense. It's not like a like an angry, scary thing. And actually, I think sitting comfortably with that voice is important because I think the times where I do the dumbest things I do at the table are where I think I've already messed a hand up and actually I'm still alive and I haven't messed it up yet. But then I do because I kind of get into that mindset. So trying to train myself to always think, what can I still play for? Can I think of a layout where, I, where we are still live here? That's sort of an ongoing thing that I'm thinking about in my game. Um, I really enjoy that aspect of bridge, actually, that kind of... When people talk about the psychological aspect of the game, they often are referring to dealing with the psychology of having opponents, whereas... The psychological aspect of the game that I enjoy is really about managing myself and sort of being in a mindset where I can perform and identifying what happens in my mind when I play well or less well and to what extent I can control that. So what does happen in your mind when you play less well, for example? Well, I've read, I've read an interesting... Um, I, I, I'm a teacher by profession. I teach chemistry and I read quite a lot of um, literature on educational research all of which has turned out to be quite applicable to bridge, actually. But I read an interesting paper about something called the um, called avoidance motivation. Basically, it said that the idea is that in a moment when you're motivated to do something, in anything in life, you're broadly either avoidance motivated, so you're motivated by trying to avoid something bad happening to you, or happening, or you're approach motivated, so you're, you're motivated by trying to make something good happen. So in a school setting, that might be you do your homework because you don't want the teacher to shout at you versus you do your homework because you're really interested in it and you want to learn more about the subject. And they both can be useful. But I realized that when I was having a session where I wasn't playing well at the bridge table, it was often because I was avoidance motivated, that I was trying to avoid the feeling that I'd let partner down or the feeling that they might be upset with me, whether or not that's necessarily related to their behavior. And the times where I was thinking very clearly and where I had so a lot of ideas about what might be happening and I was sort of able to have that combination of clarity and flexibility was when I was more approach motivated, when I was more thinking, you know, how can I get closer to making something good happen here? So not necessarily generating in the sense of taking unusual actions at the table, but in the sense of the mindset of working for a good result rather than avoiding a bad one. And that might sound at odds, with me saying about trying to avoid mistakes. But I think it's not sort of self-contradictory because it's about your mindset around those. It's not. So I think when I'm playing well, it's I'm trying to avoid making mistakes, but not from a place of sort of self-punishment or feeling bad about those mistakes, but from a point of view of trying to kind of build something perfect. So they're like a challenge. It's like a challenge to avoid the mistakes. It's something you're yeah. leaning towards. Yeah, which kind of brings me back to what Tom said to me sort of those years ago as a junior, that it's a game where you, you know, you strive for perfection and that's what it is. And that perfect line means that you didn't make mistakes. So it's sort of a way of guiding you to the to the perfect 
line. Ideally, and of course, it's a very um, sort of nebulous concept because obviously, it's obviously not. It's often not clear what what is what is right at the table, what is best, what is, you know, do you take the line that's technically better or the line that follows your gut? You know, if you have a sense that, you know, I just feel like that was a singleton, do you trust yourself or do you try to work out why you have that sense? You know, or where are you sitting there? But yeah, I mean, really about sort of that striving for perfection. I think it's an appreciation of the beauty of the game and sort of enjoying that logic. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. When you have that gut sense, it sounds like you actually then do employ the id and then you employ a super ego to maybe inquire as far as where did that gut sense so do you you don't just rely on your gut it sounds like at the table you investigate the reasons for it and validate it i think interestingly that's something that's slightly shifting for me at the moment that previously i've always been sort of aware that my gut is telling me this is what the layout is or this is a good idea and I've been very keen to sort of interrogate that and say, well, why do I think this? What clues is it that I'm picking up on that I haven't necessarily consciously processed? Whereas increasingly, I think over the last year, I've started just going with it a bit more. And I think that's had a really positive impact on my game, actually. Because what I was seeing before is that if I couldn't think of a good reason why I should follow that, I was then doing something else. And usually I then later discovered why my gut was telling me don't catch the ace of spades so i think increasingly over the last year i've just gone with it a lot more and that's generally been something that's paid off for me so that's quite a nice feeling do you think that you are more comfortable now just going with your gut because of the work you've done to this point to actually analyze the elements of it so that in a sense it's just that you can do it so much more quickly now. You don't have to think through all the steps to understand what it means that you have an impulse or an instinct about something. I think so. I think a lot of it is having confidence that it is coming from somewhere and it's not just that your brain is sort of just filling something in, that there is a pattern to spot there. A lot of it has to do with partnership as well, though, and your partner's approach to things like that. And at the moment, I'm playing with a partner who's very keen on trust yourself. And to some extent, you should kind of do your thing and not worry about what partner thinks. But at the same time, it's always encouraging if partner has that view. And you know that partner's not going to sort of say, well, why didn't you take the percentage line in Trump's? You know, don't you know what that is? And you're like, well, obviously, I know that this is the normal way to play, but it didn't seem right to me. Have there been things that you've learned from Bridge that you've gone on to apply in other areas of your life? I actually have quite a sweet story about that, Um, although you may disagree. So I went to school when I was obviously a teenager and 
for some years after I'd finished at that school, I'd go back occasionally and visit their bridge club, um, play some cards, hang out. And I knew a lot of students there. I taught some of them to play bridge when they were sort of at the, you know, the younger end of school and I was the older and they were sort of now the older students. And that was quite nice. You know, you go back, you see your teachers, that kind of thing, say hi. And it was on my sort of third trip, you know, over quite a few years. And there was a teacher there that I didn't really know. He hadn't been there in my time, but he was supervising the bridge club and we were chatting. And I was playing a hand and he'd asked me to play the hand, but to verbalize my thinking while I was doing it. And the hand ended up being something actually quite elegant, where I played for quite a niche position as defender, because there was literally no other position where it mattered what I did. And I said, well, I'm going to assume partner's got the Queen of Diamonds and the Queen Jack of Spades, um, because if he doesn't, then declarer's got the rest and it doesn't matter what I do. So he was asking me to kind of give tips to the players, um, sort of the young players. And I said, so I think quite an important thing to think is if you're stuck on a hand, imagine a layout where it matters what you do and do what's right on that layout. So you're playing for something, but never assume that it doesn't matter what you do. And the teacher sort of turned to me and he said, you know, that sounds um, kind of familiar. I remember uh, I met a bridge player who was some sort of international player a few years ago. She gave me a piece of advice a bit like that. And I've been applying it to my life ever since to always assume it matters what I do. And I was just like, that was definitely me. <laughs> but actually, I think that's quite a nice piece of advice. <laughs> and, he, and he went with it. <laughs> he did. And he said, um, he was actually quite sweet. And I said, I'm pretty sure that was me. And he was like, oh, well, this advice has been um, fantastic. I, you know, he said, I, I, I don't play a lot of bridge, but this has been a fantastic life advice. Assume it matters what you do. And if you will, like play for a position where your actions matter. And I quite like that sort of a piece of life advice. I think what you just described about visualizing what your partner might have that will make the contract, you know, that will uh, make your play matter and that will help you make that particular contract or help defeat the contract is a very important part of the game that a developing player really needs to start doing. At what point in your bridge trajectory did you start doing that? I think quite early. I think because initially, like a lot of players, I was quite overwhelmed with the enormity of bridge that there are so many things to think about and it's so hard to know where to direct your attention. And certainly initially, there's a huge load on your working memory in terms of remembering what's gone, counting shape, counting points, remembering what the auction was, you know, what spot card did they lead, da, 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 da. And initially, it's just utterly overwhelming and there's just too much to think about all at once. So you have to pick something small and think about that. So... Once I got to a point where I was able to hold the auction in my head easily and to a reasonable level hold the cards gone in my head, not necessarily all the spots, but sort of a good overview-ish. And I had a sort of reasonable basic set of kind of technical tools to call upon. That's when I started finding that I had choices to make about hands rather than just trying to kind of firefight in terms of figuring out all these things at the same time. And that was the point at which I started to think in this way, that if I got stuck, I would just imagine a hand, imagine a layout where I could do well from there and then play for that layout. And of course, if you just take that advice literally, then you'll spend a lot of time running into the wrong layout. But over time, you find that your layout that you're playing for becomes more and more likely because you become better at using the information you've got to generate a likely layout. And also you start spotting other ones. So you go, well, I can actually now think of several layouts where I can make from here. Okay, what can I do to get as many of those as I can? I'm going to try to do that. <laughs> it's also kind of like a nice like, mental release. If you're, you know, if you're in a really horrible contract and dummy comes down, you think, goodness, why on earth am I here? What am I going to do about this? then it's quite a nice mental routine to just think, well, can I think of any layout where I can make this? Any layout at all where this contract will make, no matter how ridiculous it is. Actually, that was quite a nice hand I played recently. Um, 
I was in seven spades, which was a ridiculous contract. And the lead came. It was the king of hearts led. I had a singleton heart on the dummy and ace jack one in hand. And the one was an important one. I think it was the seven, six. I can work this out. King, queen. So I need a jack ten, nine. Oh, it was the eight. That's very friendly. It was the eight. So I had ace jack eight in hand and a stiff on the dummy. She led the king against the seven spades. And I had 12 clear cut tricks and not much hope for more. Um, the long trumps are on the dummy, so roughing these hearts wasn't going to do me any good. And not much of a clue. So I, I sat down, I did exactly that. I thought, can I think of any layout at all where I can make this contract? Which wasn't actually easy to do. So my first thought was, if there's king-queen doubleton. If she's led off king-queen doubleton, I can win the ace, rough a heart, and the jack of hearts will be the 13th trick. And that didn't seem particularly likely because they hadn't bid. But I thought, well, look, that's something. I can play for something in this contract. Can I think of another layout where I can make this? And we were scraping the barrel here. There wasn't a lot going on. But I also had a diamond suit on the side. And I was missing the king, queen of diamonds, but I had all the rest of them. I thought, okay, maybe if all of these red cards are together, someone's got all of the hearts and all of the diamonds, I can squeeze them. Um, And maybe then the jack of diamonds can be my 13th trick. And obviously you've got sort of various like slightly sneaky, you can like sneak a diamond to the jack or something. So I thought for a while and actually came up with quite a, what I thought was quite an elegant line, although it was the only line. Um, so I played the jack of hearts trick two out of my hand, forcing her to cover from the queen because she'd obviously let off king queen. And her partner then had the, um, the 10, 9, 8 of hearts and I had the seven in my hand and the king queen of diamonds. So I was then able to squeeze her with all of those five cards. And I was really pleased with this. It wasn't a very technical line. It's not, I mean, it wasn't a difficult squeeze. It was just a simple squeeze. But um, I was really pleased because that illustrates that principle. I think we worked out that on the lead, the slam was about 3%. And if she doesn't lead the king of hearts, I'm just dead in the water. How long did you go into the tank to figure it out at the beginning of the hand? I think there's a solid 10 seconds of staring at the dummy in dismay. (laughs) Okay, so that's 10 seconds. And then to work out the quintuple squeeze. (laughs) Not actually that long because it wasn't actually a very complicated squeeze. I mean, it was just a simple simple positional squeeze. So I looked at it. I thought about this king-queen doubleton heart potential. Didn't seem very likely, but I thought at least I've got something I can bank as I played for a thing. Obviously, then the idea of a squeeze came to me quite fast. And I thought, well, actually, I know the hearts are there or or on my left because she'd obviously led the king of hearts. It's going to be off the queen. This is going to have to be a positional squeeze. It's going to have to be on righty. So I'm going to have to isolate the heart menace with righty. Is that, I don't know, maybe another 10, 20 seconds? But it it was, it's not a complex, it wasn't a complex position. I made it sound very impressive though. (laughs) Do you relish these types of hands? I was very pleased about that one. Look, I think every bridge player gets a bit of a kick out of making a contract that's a bit stupid. Um, Anytime you make something that either you're really not entitled to make or that, I mean, in this case, after the lead, it was cold, but it was obviously a, I can't really claim any entitlement to have made that. I think everyone gets a bit of a kick out of that. And I definitely went away feeling quite good. At the same time, I did consider the possibility that maybe um, something gone awry in the auction on that one. Well, it's nice when it's based on your having figured out the correct line, the only line that will work, but the line that will work. Yes, I would much, much prefer to find a hand like that that was quite beautiful and to get it right than to have Oppo just chuck tricks at me. Um, At the same time, I accept all donations of tricks. (laughs) As do we all. (laughs) I, I don't want anyone to think that I'd be ungrateful. Um, No, but there's something really satisfying about getting a hand like that right, that you feel really good about yourself. It really gives you a buzz. And yeah, and it's, I guess, coming back to what I was saying earlier about finding the game beautiful, that you feel that it's a beautiful game and that you've in some way kind of touched that. A player of your skill would have many opportunities to demonstrate all kinds of elegance at the table but are you prepared to share with us one of the dumbest things you've ever done? Yeah, sure. I mean, firstly, I do dumb things all the time. And I think 
I think a lot of bridge players do. I mean, I think for the vast majority of us, it's not possible to play without mistakes. Um, your definition of dumb mistake does shift, I guess. But I still produce some pretty ridiculously bad actions at times. But actually, I've got quite, um, I don't know, I've, I've quite a kind of sweet, silly thing from when I was, it was a long time ago, and that's not because I haven't done anything silly since, but I just kind of like this one, which was in my first, uh, my first international event, which was a junior Europeans in Romania. Our oppo opened a multi against me. I'd never seen a multi before, um, and no one had prepared me for this. <laughs> so I overcalled two no trumps, um, thinking that that would show the minors for no particular reason. I just didn't really know what I was doing. Two no trumps does not show the minors over a multi, at least not classically, and certainly not without discussion. And the next hand bid three spades. My partner, to be fair, might have had an inkling um, holding five hearts and four spades that something was rotten in the state of Denmark. But she bid four hearts and that was the required disaster because obviously I had a reasonable but not particularly special hand with five five in the minors and that was pretty awful. The reason that I like this hand was I mentioned it some years later to a friend as an example of just me having no clue what to do when faced with something new and just making something up that was kind of nonsense. And she was a bridge player, same age as me. And she said, oh, I've done that before. In fact, I've done that exact thing before. And it turned out she did that exact thing on the same hand in the same event. Wow. And except at her table, they did not bid three spades. They passed. <laughs> so her partner bid three diamonds transferred to spade to hearts. And there she played. Three diamonds, where she had five good diamonds. Oh, some people get all the luck, right? <laughs> and I like that. Um, this was um, a German lady. She, I mean, she doesn't play much anymore, but this was a particularly nice one for me because um, her partner at the time um, was Marie Egerling, and I now play with Marie and won a silver medal with her in the summer. So we kind of, that was one of the things that got kind of we chatted about when we first got to know each other, that she had now had another partner who might do this to her. <laughs> I'd like to return to something that you were talking about earlier in the interview. You were describing the way that you think about yourself as a player and the decision about what kind of player you wanted to be. Why did that question even present itself to you? Were you observing other players and thinking they're this kind of player and that kind of player and what kind of player do I want to be? Or were you noticing certain strengths or weaknesses in your game and deciding what you wanted to lean into? What, what were the conditions surrounding your thinking about this? Um, it was actually something that Mike, my husband, sent to, said to me, that I do sort of notice categories of player. That's a really bad word, but I don't really know how to put into words what I mean. But it's not something I'd really thought about apart from thinking, well, that's, you know, that works for her, but that's not my style. Or, wow, I really wish I could be the player who produced that, that bid. But it was following a session I'd played that hadn't gone super well. And I look over all the sessions I play with Mike, just because it's a thing that we really like to do. And he looked at a hand that I'd bid. I can't remember what it was. And he said, I think the problem that you've run into on this hand is that you couldn't decide if you wanted to be the pitcher or the catcher. Is that the right analogy? I don't speak whichever sport that is. I think it might be baseball. There we go, baseball. I don't know baseball, but that if the analogy is right, then that's what he said. And he basically said, on this hand, you were trying to do both and you couldn't decide what, you're, what you were doing. And as a result, this has gone wrong. You needed to pick one thing and commit to that thing. So the role in that moment. Yeah. So he's sort of like, I can't remember the exact hand, but I think that basically I'd sort of tried to push up around in the auction, but then kind of backed off at the wrong moment and this had resulted in disaster and basically I either needed to commit to doing that or I needed to go sort of a more classical route for the hand but not try to combine both and that kind of made me think in a wider sense was this something I was sort of thinking about more broadly and it made me realize that in my game in general I didn't really know kind of what I was aiming for and I didn't really know if I was trying to 
generate action at the table or if I was trying to just keep things quite chilled and make fewer mistakes than opponents, ideally. Yeah, and so I had quite a lot of thinking about that. And I'd played quite a lot with stronger players than me. And it's very natural when you do that to kind of fall into the role of making sure that you're following what they're doing. And when I was a stronger player, I was often then taking on sort of that leading role of going, well, no, this is maybe what the defense should look like and trying to lead partner. But I probably wasn't doing either of those things very well. And I think it was a good thing for me to actually have a, like, a more active think about, well, what do I actually prefer and what works for me? Can I not just default to doing what seems right based on the power dynamic in the partnership, but actually what seems to fit within my game? And that was, yeah, a really good thing. So do you now go into a game with a clear mindset about that kind of role? Can, how does that work? I mean, with any individual game, I'm more or less going thinking I would like to make fewer mistakes than my opponents. And if I'm able to do that, we will win. Um, obviously, that's a huge, yeah, it's a really simplistic kind of way to frame it. But that's the mindset that I normally get into. I quite like that, again, because thinking in terms of avoiding mistakes sounds very defeatist and very harsh and like you're being really hard on yourself. But again, it makes me feel, I don't, I don't, I don't experience it that way. For me, it's more about feeling that it's in my power, that if I can avoid mistakes and if I can play well, so it doesn't matter what other people are doing. And so that's within my control. Whereas if I start to think, well, I need to make something good happen because we're going to be behind because of that, then you're ending up putting a lot of control of what happens in that match. You're sort of giving a lot of that to other people. And for me, that's far more stressful than just focusing in. I, I tend to like to just focus in on what I'm doing and let other people sort out what they're doing, which has made for some interesting partnership dynamics because I'm really not interested in partnerships where someone's having a go at someone else I'm not prepared to sort of accept that from my partner. I very much don't want to be that person to a partner. I very much want to focus on my game and on doing the best that I can do and want them to do the same thing. It doesn't mean you can't talk about hands, but it has to be from a point of view of, you know, how can we support each other? You mentioned that you were putting people into categories and you were a little hesitant to use that word but I was curious to know more about these, for lack of a better word, categories of players that you were sorting people into. I mean, I wouldn't say I do anything quite so like deliberate or as considered as that. But people are generally aware in Bridge that X player is more aggressive in the auction. You know, this player is likely to bid game very freely and just hope that you're going to let it in. So you have to defend properly. Um, or this player tends to be conservative in the part score when it comes to fighting for a part score. So you can push maybe a little bit more because you won't get doubled, things like that. So people tend to be aware of that kind of style and opponents that they've met a lot of times. So I guess that's just what I meant. The bridge community is a fairly small world. To what extent are you able to make these judgments because you play against the same players again and again? You know, you're playing against the elite of the bridge community, but you're going to see them at every tournament and you get to know each other. Yeah, I mean, knowing your opponent's game is obviously incredibly helpful and there are people, obviously, that I play more or less. Clearly, you're always going to know a bit more about the game of people in your country uh, more and wherever it is you play compared to people you haven't played a lot before. Um, yeah, and certainly that's a really helpful thing. And at the same time, it also, I don't know, something I really like about that, though, is the social side of that, that I really enjoy that when I go to tournaments, you know, I see people that I was juniors with and that you can have a conversation with them, have a chat with them. It's not just about sort of knowing how to play at the table. It's a lot, you know, I, I really like the social side of that. But do you find yourself taking advantage of little quirks you know about people's games or their tendencies in certain situations or is that just of course you do because that's what people do and it's part of the game um I mean, i'm not that observant like i wouldn't notice like mannerisms and things i wouldn't really pick up on and i'm not someone who i think has a particularly great table feel but also part of the role though if you're on a 
if you're playing on, say, a national team, part of the role of the coach is to give you some heads up, a bit of a heads up about your opponents. So I haven't experienced so much of this, but it's quite common for coaches to go and watch your opponents for the next round. So I know certainly for open teams that coaches do that and then to sort of feedback. And that kind of thing is part of their role to prepare you for a match. And that's part one of the show. Many thanks to our guest, Sarah Bell. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy with additional music by Elijah Meltzer. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side, and remember to tune in next week to hear part two of our interview with Sarah Bell. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game, and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.